This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The Supreme Court's abortion rights decision has many Americans wondering, how did we get here? According to legal historian Mary Ziegler, the fall of Roe v. Wade was decades in the making and the result of a savvy social movement that controlled the nation's highest court, influenced the rules of campaign spending, and remade the Republican Party. That is the argument that she makes in her new book, Dollars for Life. It's one of several books that she's written on the politics of abortion. She's also a law professor at the University of California, Davis. And she joins us now. Hi, Professor. Welcome to Reset. Hey, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining. Um, You've written several op-eds about the Supreme Court's decision. Can you walk us through your thought process about this news? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the court's decision in some ways wasn't a surprise. Obviously, we had a leaked draft of the opinion Mm -hmm. in May. But I think it still comes as a shock because this was a decision um, that the Supreme Court really didn't have to make this quickly, as Chief Justice John Roberts himself, a conservative, pointed out. Uh, It didn't need to be this broad because the court is saying not only that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, but that our our entire way of thinking about our other constitutional rights is deserving of an overhaul. Um, So this was really, I think, a a striking decision um, and one that will affect many people's views of the legitimacy of the court. So you say that the the fall of Roe v. Wade reflects decades of organizing. When and Mm -hmm. why did the anti-abortion movement start? Well, the anti-abortion movement predated Roe v. Wade, right? There was an anti-abortion movement as soon as states began to modify at all criminal laws on abortion. So, for example, by adding rape and incest exceptions, the anti-abortion movement opposed that. But um, And after Roe, initially, the anti-abortion movement fought for a constitutional amendment that would criminalize abortion in all states, so progressive as well as conservative states. And when it gave up on that, it was obviously because it had to, um, the movement turned instead to control of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the fight to control the Supreme Court um, changed lots of things about the way our democracy works. The anti-abortion movement helped to convince conservative voters that the Supreme Court was a major election issue, that regular people should care about the court when they go to the polls. Uh, The movement eventually got heavily involved in an existing fight to change rules on campaign finance, um, in particular to deregulate campaign spending, and all of which led to Citizens United and um, a flood of outside money, so non-party money in elections. Uh, a lot of that work also helped to weaken traditional leaders of the Republican Party and to make it easier for uh, populists, people like Donald Trump, um, to uh, gain power in that party. Mm. So so that's how the movement basically helped push the courts to the right? Uh, well, the movement helped push the courts to the right by trying to control the courts, right? So th- that how that the campaign finance connection to the courts worked was that in 1992, the movement realized that just getting Republicans elected wasn't going to work, right? The court had six conservatives on it, didn't overrule Roe anyway. So the movement tried to find new ways to influence the GOP, right? And one way to do that was with money. Um, Money could help get more Republicans elected. It could help buy the anti-abortion movement more influence in the GOP. Um, And it could give the movement more of an opportunity to say, this judge isn't ideologically pure enough. This judge isn't reliably conservative enough. This judge seems to faint in the the face of controversy. The movement wanted more judges like Clarence Thomas who were willing to do things even that were deeply unpopular. And by 2005, we began to see that having an effect. Of course, then George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers. Mm-hmm. Um, social conservatives and others were not okay with that, and they managed to doom that nomination. That would have been unthinkable, I think, uh, even a decade before. So the movement managed to get more influence in the GOP in in a variety of ways, but also through money. And we we see that now, of course, the 
Republican Party relies more than ever on anti-abortion voters um, to get victories on Election Day. You write about the uh, intersection of abortion politics and campaign spending. Why is that significant? Well, it was significant because I think we often tend to think of Roe and abortion as being women's issues. And obviously that's true. People who can get pregnant are already being affected by this decision. But I think part of what I wanted to show in writing the book was that the quest to overturn Roe changed democracy in various ways for everyone, changed election spending in various ways for everyone, not just for people who can get pregnant, but for anybody who participates in our political system. And so what what I wanted to, to study was, you know, that this effort to get rid of Roe v. Wade won't just end with Roe v. Wade um, in terms of our other rights or in terms of reproductive health care. It also won't end with Roe v. Wade in terms of the way our democratic system works more broadly. Let's talk more about uh, former President Donald Trump, who you mentioned a moment ago. He's giving himself credit for the Supreme Court's decision in the abortion case and in other recent outcomes. What role exactly did he play in all of this? Well, he obviously played a significant role um, insofar as even when you have decades of work um, that have gone into this moment, uh, a lot of coincidences have to happen. A lot of things have to break the right way. Um, it in order for this to actually play out the right way um, from the standpoint of the anti-abortion movement. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg can't retire at a certain point. She has to wait until later and then pass away. Um, Merrick Garland's confirmation can't go through. Hillary Clinton can't win the Electoral College. And so obviously you would never have had a decision overruling Roe without all three of Donald Trump's nominees. Even two wouldn't have been enough to get us to this point. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, Trump does uh, deserve credit, but it's it's also obviously much more than just a single person. This is a, a broad social movement um, that's been working with the Federalist Society. It's been working with other conservative movements. So there's a much richer, messier history uh, in addition to Donald Trump. If you're just tuning in, this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and that is legal historian and law professor Mary Ziegler. We're discussing how America got to a place where the uh, Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe v. Wade. Professor, the uh, Illinois primary, that's tomorrow, and and midterm elections, they're just a few months away. I wonder what you make of the political timing of this decision. Well, I mean, this is clearly a court that isn't worried about popular opinion, right? I mean, the court has seen the same polls we've seen about overruling Roe. Um, The court has seen the same polls we've seen about some of the laws that uh, anti-abortion states are passing, Right. So not just the kinds of laws that enjoy popular support, like restrictions later in pregnancy. We're seeing things very early in pregnancy with no rape and incest exceptions. This is a court, I think, that quite clearly isn't worried about damage to its legitimacy and isn't worried about political ramifications and isn't really worried about popular opinion at all. And there there are moments in the opinion where Justice Alito almost says exactly that. Uh, And so I think what that means essentially is that the court isn't worried about popular politics. The question really, I think, is whether voters will will demonstrate that the court made a mistake in that regard, right, that that there is something that there is going to be a response to this. And it's not clear. It's also not clear to me whether the response we're going to see will be immediate, right, whether this will kick in in 2022, because we know with Roe Mm -hmm. that um, the anti-abortion response to Roe was not immediate, right? In 1975, this was not a big deal. Um, You know, Supreme Court nominees weren't asked about Roe. Politicians didn't talk a lot about Roe. So the progressive response to this could happen immediately um, in a voting way, or it could take a while. So I think um, we'll have to stay tuned to really know the answer to that.
When it comes to the uh, the elections, though, are you expecting Republicans to work this to their favor? They'll certainly try. I mean, the thing to emphasize here is as much as progressives are very upset about this, this is not where conservatives want to end up, right? Where conservatives want to end up is with something like fetal personhood, which would mean no legal abortion anywhere. So it would mean that if voters in Illinois want abortion to be legal, it wouldn't matter because abortion would be unconstitutional, full stop. So conservative voters are going to be motivated now, too. I think usually when someone quite literally loses a constitutional right, they'd be more motivated. I think there's a sense sometimes that when you win in the Supreme Court, um, you can get complacent. And I think that that may be Mm -hmm. happening with conservatives. But um, it's worth emphasizing this is not the end for conservatives, so they will likely be motivated um, as well. Well, speaking in more than half of U.S. states, they're expected to quickly move to ban abortion. As of this morning, Professor, at least 10 states have already done this, uh, including states that border Illinois, where here abortion does remain legal. Are you expecting legal battles around this issue moving forward? I am. Yeah, I think um, Illinois is likely to be at the center of some of these battles, in part because we've already seen some signs that Republican lawmakers in neighboring states are interested in preventing people from traveling to Illinois to get abortions, which right. is obviously very easy in some parts of Illinois. The the distance between you know East St. Louis um, and St. Louis, for example, is is shorter than it is to cross town in Chicago, right? So I think um, we'll see fights, for example, about whether states can prosecute doctors from out of state. I think Illinois lawmakers are likely to try to shield doctors in Illinois from those kinds of consequences. We're going to see questions raised about the constitutional right to travel, about what's called choice of law. So if Illinois says something is legal um, and Missouri says it's not, who gets to decide? And so as much as this Mm. decision doesn't change things for people seeking abortions in Illinois, it does put Illinois in the middle of potentially these questions of interstate conflict that we're likely to see unfold in the days and weeks ahead. That's very interesting. I mean, who would get to decide that? Right. We would... The answer is who knows, because right. I mean, we haven't. If you think about this, what can you think of a scenario where a state has said, if you go do something that's legal in that state, we're going to try to prosecute you right. for it in our state. That's, yeah. You can't think of anything. And so we have very little guidance from legal precedent on this. There are not a lot of historical examples we can look to because people just frankly haven't done this before. Mm-hmm. I feel like those um, in power so will find a, a way. Lot of uncertainty. Yeah, we're, we're living in a post-Roe America now. Uh, Justice Alito wrote in his majority opinion that uh, the court's decisions protecting contraception and same-sex marriage are not in jeopardy. What are your thoughts, though? Well, I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, first of all, everyone should probably know that the Supreme Court has issued disclaimers like this before and then um, taken them back. So, Usually when there is a disclaimer like this, it means the court is not going to do anything imminently to any of those rights. So I don't think anyone needs to worry about the court reversing or undoing those rights in the next year or two. But we also know that historically, when the Supreme Court has said this sort of thing, they often have violated their promise, you know, a decade later, five years later. And we also know, of course, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a separate opinion, said the court should undo rights to same-sex marriage, birth control, and same-sex intimacy. And we know that the approach that Justice Alito laid out, the idea that the only rights we have are the rights that lawmakers in the 19th, late 19th century, right, would think we have. If that was true, of course, at that time, same-sex sex sex was a crime, same-sex marriage wasn't legal, interracial marriage was illegal. 
birth control was illegal, women couldn't vote. So, I mean, if that's our guideline for what rights we have, there's no reason to think the court wouldn't go further than abortion. The court tells us abortion is different. Abortion is the taking of a fetal life. They may stick to that. They may not. But I think if you're looking further down the line, you definitely have to wonder how long that this guarantee the court has given us will be good for. Mm-hmm. The justice also wrote, quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. What's your take on that? Well, I, again, I mean, I think the question is, whose Constitution are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's worrisome to me that the beginning and end of our constitutional rights with this court is a, a, histor- a historical account that, as a historian, I don't find particularly good. It's pretty thin. He doesn't, court doesn't cite the best historians on the history it's supposedly narrating. But even if you just take that aside, the, the basic premise that the only rights we have are the rights that were determined by people at a time when most of us were not really enfranchised to be part of We the People, I'm not comfortable with that either. So uh, I think the question of what rights we have more broadly, including the right to abortion, is something we all need to think a lot more about. Yeah. Well, leave us with a a final thought here, Professor. The end of Roe, how how is that going to impact American democracy overall? Well, I think that that's very much to be determined by the people listening to this, right? I mean, I think one lesson I had as a historian watching the aftermath of Roe is that very few people could have predicted how much American politics around abortion and American politics writ large would change in, the, in that, those 50 years. And I think it's very hard to predict the course of the backlash to Dobbs and how it could change American politics. So there's nothing, I mean, people will use language around the Supreme Court decision like inevitable and written in stone. And I would say that as a historian, I don't see anything as inevitable. I think what people want American democracy to look like and how this this moment, the elimination of this constitutional right motivates people is something I think a lot of us will have a say in. Mary Ziegler is a professor of law at the University of California, Davis. She's also a legal historian and author of Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for having me. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.